the Stockout. This is your show at Freight Waves for all things related to the CPG and retail industries. I'm one of your hosts, Mike Bowden-Distel, joined by Grace Sharkey. Grace, good to see you. feels like we haven't done one of these in a while. No, it has been. That was quite some time. So, uh, yeah, it's good to see you, too. Happy to, to be back here. And uh, we got a lot to talk about today. So that's the positive thing about this this long-term wait. Exactly. A lot to talk about. So a few of those things are going to be J.B. Hunt's earnings. They kicked off earnings season last week. I'll talk about that. They're always kind of a bellwether in the space. Um, I'll talk about the improving consumer sentiment, maybe. Um, also, update on the CPG pricing, some interesting things there, update on the Kroger-Albertson's merger, uh, which I still think is going to happen. And then you have some uh, information on packaging trends. So putting the P in CPG. Before we do that, um, I want to make sure everyone knows how to sign up for the Stockout newsletter. Uh, pretty simple. Go to FreightWaves.com forward slash the Stockout or FreightWaves.com forward slash subscribe and subscribe to all of them. But um, you know ours is the best. So go to newsletters at the top, first one under supply chains. Uh, the stock out there. Um, happy to have you as part of that community. We try to be in your inbox once a week, Wednesday, Thursday, sometimes Friday, depends on what else is uh, going on in the world of data uh, and freight. Um, so with that, I'll go into our first uh, topic, which is J.B. Hunt uh, reported earnings uh, last week. I'm not going to go through this like a stock analyst would. Um, I'll just talk about some of the highlights. And I think there were really sort of two highlights for me. They highlighted the improved intermodal volume, so improved freight demand, including intermodal, which has improved throughout the year, seems to be pretty strong going into 2024. Uh, and also, they talked about rate pressure in intermodal specifically, and uh, some of the numbers behind that have a sonar chart on unloaded um, containerized intermodal volume, which is right in uh, J.B. Hunt's uh, you know, market. There it is. So this is going to be 53-foot containers primarily. There might be a few 40-foot containers, but primarily loaded. 53-foot containers, which a lot of those are owned by J.B. Hunt. And you see towards the, the right side of there, that October, it really did kind of, kind of have a peak season there. So our volume showed that it was up about 4.5%. Now, J.B. Hunt said their intermodal volume in the fourth quarter was up 6%. So that implies, you know, if our data is right, about um, 150 basis points of, of um market share gain that J.B. Hunt had in the fourth quarter. And I looked at that actually on a, on a, on a monthly basis because J.B. Hunt talks about that on a monthly basis too. And sort of each month, their year-over-year change is about 150 basis points better than what we had um, in Sonar. So so very directionally consistent. Um, so I thought that was interesting You know, going into um, January. Volume seemed to be look, look pretty solid. Another interesting thing there was on the pricing was that J.B. Hunt talks about their rates, you know, per load down 12.8% in the fourth quarter. So that's going to include mix, which can, can have a big impact in intermodal, as well as, as fuel, which can have a big impact. And then just overall the change of, of, of um, intermodal rates and have a sonar chart on that that shows, um, you know, what we're kind of looking at. And so, you know, when you look at um, you know, what we have in 2024 is that white line and you see it below you know the previous the previous year. That's kind of what we're we're, what we're looking at here um, in terms of you know, starting the year below where it was. Uh, you know the prior year, and and that has a lot to do with just where bids were repriced late last year. There's one CPG company that um, we interact with quite a lot that shares their rates with us, and in their top ten lanes, they were down an average of eighteen percent when you compare their rates without fuel surcharges 
at the end of 2023 versus the end of 2022, call it December through December. So a lot of that is bleeding into the first first half. And so they're expecting, uh, J.B. Hunt's expecting rates to be lower in the first half versus in the first half of um, 2023. Uh, another thing that's uh, you know come up is I think the the as, as a positive thing is the rail service levels have been strong. And maybe the exception to that has been uh, this this latest weather, which is impairing some of the the intermodal um, you know times and and things. But you have some have a chart from the STB. So this is from the U.S. Surface Transportation Board is the source of this data, and you can see that this is and this is BNSF specifically, which you know to be fair they have not had the spike and, and as much weather as the, the eastern part of the country, but you do still nevertheless see a spike um, in. Uh, trains, uh, train, trains being held. So these are train holding, trains holding per day for the type and cause. And you do see a spike up there um, at the right, but nowhere near the type of delays you had in late 20, throughout 2021, throughout the first half of, and really most of, of, of 2022. So these seem to be at least pretty manage, manageable for the, for the Western, uh, for, the, for the Western carriers. So all that sort of translates to, um, you know, kind of what, what J.B. Hunt's kind of motto is right now is that their volume is a leading indicator pricing is a, is a lagging indicator we're somewhere past the very early stages of a freight recovery but we're not yet at the point where you're going to see that in, in in rates quite yet did you have any thoughts on um jb hunt well I, we won't get into it too much on this but uh, you know my brokerage background i was uh, kind of shocked at their their fall off in the brokerage or uh, i believe they call it the integrated uh, contract services segment or something along those lines so uh, definitely go check out the article that we had that reviewed this but i will say positive news i think looking at this is uh, especially with everything we're seeing uh with with the red sea the panama canal is that um, this came up right in our state of freight webinar that I think uh, we'll see more action come to the West Coast, which I think could be a lot of great news mm -hmm. for their intermodal segment and a lot of their investment, uh, even with BNSF logistics and some of the services uh, transloading in those areas as well. And uh, of course, for their intermodal uh, aspect as well. So, yeah, I, I think it's uh, I, I don't think anyone's surprised by these numbers. Again, like we've seen a lot of this action in sonar uh, here at Freight Waves, but uh, I think we'd be surprised if we saw clearly the opposite of what they ended up uh, performing at. But uh, yeah, no, I'm excited to see kind of how they end uh, this year, knowing a lot of that, I think, uh, that freight that's going to end up on the West Coast compared to the East Coast that we saw in, in 23. Yeah, a great point there. I mean, when when the freight comes into the West Coast, something like 65 or 70% of that can go intermodal to the Eastern consumption centers, where it comes in through the East Coast, we're maybe 20 or 25%. So a big difference there, if you just have that that gain in market share in the West Coast, and then, and then you're right, there really wasn't much of a surprise there. The stock didn't react you know, much the, the, the next day. I think maybe it was up 1% or something. Um, so I want to move on to our next topic, which is uh, sort of Conagra's price and mix declined. And so this was highly, they, they reported earnings January 4th, about the last time we, we did a show like this. Wall Street Journal wrote up a pretty extensive article on it. And so when, they talk, when some of the CPG companies talk about price and mix, they sort of conflate you know, what the actual pricing is versus the, the mix. So you can have a increase in price and mix by selling more you know, expensive products. So in talk of a CPG company that sells in the grocery, more $5 projects, fewer $3 products. And so ConAgra was the first CPG company that's reported a down 
price mix. And that's significant because there's just been so much inflation in CPG prices the last few years. So for Conagra specifically, 30% inflation in the last three years. I think for some of the other CPGs, it's been even worse than that. But this latest quarter for Conagra, their price mix was down 0.5%, their organic sales volume down 2.9%. And they talk about how the ingredients are a big part of that, where they're mixed, where you know, the margarine, edible oils, which, you know, are, are down. I mean, certainly that's the, the edible oils were at an elevated level because of the Ukraine situation, you know, dairy coming down and then some of the tomato based products are, are up, you know, some of those change with, with growing uh, conditions. So there's always this kind of, kind of mix of price changes in ingredients, but I think we're past the inflation in, in CPG. The question is, is this going to be more of a broad, you know, decline in CPG prices. Uh, it does seem like the direction of CPG prices from here is down based on what Walmart said on their latest analyst call, also what Costco said on their latest analyst call. Those companies that are making some of their own private labels, they have a pretty good handle on what the costs that go into those products are. And it seems like they've been more aggressive. So um, you think this is kind of the first of, of many? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you. I think, uh, if anything, I, uh, listening to some of these calls and, and reading these transcripts, they, they s seem more open and almost, I don't want to say desperate, but there's like a, a tone that's like, we're doing our best, right, to start to get a lot of these prices down. They, I think they understand like the inflation aspect is starting to die down. Yeah, you brought up uh, the margarine aspect. The tomatoes are still, ha of course, having an issue, but I don't think we're seeing it across the board in as many items and as, as ingredients as we've seen in the past. So now it's time to figure out that strategy, right, of how we're going to actually showcase uh, that we're bringing these prices down to consumers and again i i think that it's there i think after we again maybe a, a year even a couple quarters go by we'll start to see it a little bit more in pricing uh and i i personally feel like i've seen it even more so uh at the store as well at least uh if it's what i've almost noticed is like um especially on the beverage side if anything it's like if, if the total price hasn't gone down there's some really interesting deals uh that are happening instead so maybe we see a mix of that until we they finally feel a little bit less pain from the actual ingredient side as well yeah so deals like promotions if you buy two you get one free those type of things yeah that kind of stuff mm -hmm. yeah yeah, and this relationship between the CPG and retail, it really boiled over in Europe. So two newsletters ago wrote up the Carrefour, which is one of the big grocery chains in Europe, you know, largely French, and Pepsi, where Pepsi said they pulled out, grocer said they stopped carrying them, any of it, they couldn't agree on, you know, That's the price right. of snacks and, and uh, beverages. But it's 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 rare for something like that to, to come to boil the surface to that level. Usually, it's a little bit more subtle. You know, changes in you know promotional activity or changes in placement on shelves or or, or those type of things. But but clearly, I think they're, they're the the CPG companies have to concede a little bit because a retailer really conceded a lot. I think the last few years with with accepting some of these price increases. So um, it, it seems like it's shifting back to, to retailers not accepting. The price increases at this point going forward. I uh, want to move on. Uh, speaking of retail, uh, we do have this um, you know, pending merger between Kroger and Albertsons. The close date did get pushed back. So 
this was announced in, when was it announced? October, 2022. And now it was expected initially in early 2024. And I was always like, well, you know, it's hard to get things closed when they're supposed to be closed. And that, that does seem to be the case here where it, it's going to, now they're expecting August close. FTC, Federal Trade Commission has not weighed in on it. They're expected to do that next month. And the grocers say that they've done what they needed to do. They've, they've divested the 413 stores to the CNS Wholesale, which CNS Wholesale, you know, wholesaler now getting into the retail side of things. So the grocers say, we're good. Um, I'm sure there, there are lawyers which have been looking at this you know, long before the deal was announced you know, are, are on that page. So the Federal Trade Commission, ball's now in their court. They have three options. They could say they could close the investigation, allowing the deal to proceed. They could either ask for additional um, requirements, which could be additional divestitures or could be something else. Or they could just take legal action to block this in court, which is what um, some of the most liberal lawmakers would prefer, Bernie Sanders, um, et cetera. But, um, you know, any thoughts on any, any guess as to whether or not what the, what the FTC is going to do? So if I do you remember uh, the number that they were willing to divest in originally? Was it the total 413? So I think initially the they said it was going to be something like 300 to 500. They thought they could get the deal done if they divested between 300 and 500 if memory serves. And so it's a little bit yeah. close to the middle part of the range. So I guess maybe part of me is wondering if they come back and ask for a little bit more of that action. But at this point, it almost feels like, will that really make a difference to what they're being sued for? And I really don't think so. Uh, will that mm -hmm. stall possibly any uh, issues with smaller brands and smaller uh uh, stores in, in regards to competition. I just, I don't think so at this point. Um, and I just, I feel like the, and it's funny because I remember at this point when we were going over this, we were doing two different shows and I did kind of showcase the argument that uh, the, the smaller uh, grocery uh, competitors or those that were uh, afraid of, of course, uh, the, the non-union groups afraid of uh, losing their impact uh, kind of discussing their argument. I just feel like it's not that it's not strong enough uh, in order for the FTC to to tell this deal that it can't go forward. Uh, it feels a little bit uh, last hail mary throw to me personally uh, in in their regard. So uh, I, I I don't think so. I think this will go through in August. Maybe they ask and they they um, they let go of a few more stores, divest in a few more stores. But again, I just don't see even that action uh, curtailing anything that they're being sued for. And again, I think it's just kind of this Hail Mary throw to see if we can stop this deal. And now as a, as a betting woman or maybe more betting than I should be, I would, I would say this will go through in that August uh, date. Hopefully it doesn't get pushed back anymore. Like you said, it takes time, but I, I think it'll end up closing then. Yeah, I think it'll close at some point. I think initially the thought was that if they, even if they divested 400 stores, if they divested them, you know, 10 at a time to one group, 20 at a time to another group, you had a lot of these little independent grocers, a lot of those could go out of business. And then you, that doesn't really help the end consumer because it doesn't create additional competition. But divesting them all to this is, is very, you know, seems like a very profitable company. This is, you know, all you know so much because they're private, but seems like that's a really um, strong competitor. 
that I, I think they have maybe assuaged that concern. Um, I want to move on to another topic here. So retail looks to AI to assist in supply chain management. So John Kingston of Freight Waves, our editor at large, which I guess means he writes about a lot of different things, went to this NRF meeting, National Retail Federation meeting, and they talked some about AI. And some of the ways the retailers are using this is for demand and inventory forecasting makes a lot of sense, sort of incorporating additional data points into their data forecasting. So things that are maybe wouldn't have been considered as much, you know, before, um, you know, things like, you know, weather trends and, and, and all of those things. Uh, and there, but there was also this really great quote that he had from Helen Davis, Senior Vice President of North America Operations at Kraft Heinz. And she says, data flows and driving supply chain that can automatically reset itself when there are disruptions is, is really the, sort of the, the key there. Uh, so when there's a disruption, the AI is, is sort of what steps in and creates a reset. So I thought that was, was, was very interesting. I know you, know you follow the technology side of things very well. What, what did you, um, you know, gather from AI and retail? Uh, I, I mean, I, that that show that he goes to is huge, and I can just guarantee that was probably the, the overall main topic that came up. I think AI is going to be huge in just so many different forms and the way it's used. Uh, at one way, actually, this year at um, a conference I went to in, in Florida, the CSCMP conference, Pepsi actually did a really fascinating presentation on how they're looking to change uh, from using the, the barcode scanner to a new AI-focused uh coding system that would allow even a consumer to scan this code on their phone and get like a full breakdown of the supply chain, what's in it, what the packaging is made out of, like a, apparently unbeknownst to me before this presentation, barcode can can really only do so much holding price, et cetera. So it was, it was really fascinating to see like as just a, a a consumer, right? What it could do from just scanning a barcode and and learning about the product uh, that uh, Pepsi or any of its brands uh, has put on those shelves. So I think that will see that should be coming to fruition. I think this year uh, they started talking about that in like May of last year. Uh, a big one is AI chatbots. I think we're seeing that all over the place for customer service, especially uh, retailers in particular. Uh, a, a bunch of makeup brands, uh, even stores like Ulta, Sephora, have talked about starting to use AI to create ways for consumers to uh, like apply makeup onto their own pictures of themselves and even try on clothes uh, on when they're uh, shopping online. Uh, marketing is a huge one. Amazon has come out already this year, this past year, 23, that they are using AI to create the descriptions and uh, use words and, and captivating uh, phrases in order to gauge uh, more volume and, and, and eyes on certain products. Uh, Walmart right now is uh, investing in uh, their for their furniture unit, like online, being able to build out a room, kind of like a Sims type of situation, right? So you can put in your room dimensions and then figure out exactly how uh, a, a number of I items could fit in that room in total. Uh, and I think this all kind of goes back to rising prices. Like if we are going to be paying more as consumers in, in retail or even, I mean, going to the grocery store and, and with, for example, Pepsi's, right? Uh, I think we're fine with that if there's just a better experience coming out of it, right? Like if I'm 
if I'm purchasing something for more and there's not more product and the quality ingredients, et cetera, aren't better either. Well, what's my experience purchasing that product? Like, how are you engaging me as a customer? And, and, and am I learning, right? We, we talk about different initiatives when it comes to sustainability, so stuff like that. So am I able to actually uh, see that with like the Pepsi example, as soon as I, as I process this, can I see the full supply chain? So I, I know for sure the moment I check out that I'm buying something that's better for the global economy and the environment. So, uh, I just, I think this will be an area that's simple to invest in that has a really good outcome at the end of the day. Yeah, there's definitely a lot there. I mean, I always think about just, you know, the more the data that certain retailer collects about an individual consumer, the more they can recommend things, the yeah. more that that advertising is valuable because, you know, if you know you buy Cliff Bars, you know, somebody makes a competing energy bar, that's really valuable for a piece of information because they know that's a consumer that buys energy bars. So they probably pay a lot to yeah. get in front of that consumer. They, they might even you know, give them some, you know, box of them for free just as, as, as a way to entice them. So, you know, lots of, of interesting things there on, on, on AI and uh, technology. Um, so what's new in the world of, yeah. of packaging? Yeah, I, I love how you put it. And so let's put the P back in CPG for sure. Uh, so a packaging side, uh, you know, it's interesting. This has actually hit home for me recently. Uh, we've had two closures in Michigan over the last year, uh, one in the last week actually at Graphic Packaging, which is a, a fairly large packaging program for C, company for CPGs. They make a lot of, uh, you probably even see like coffee cups and that nature uh, created there. Uh, and I, so I started looking into it and overall, I think this is something we're going to see uh, happening a lot more for 2024 and packaging in particular. Uh, what we start, we started to see a number of packaging companies over the last like six months uh, letting individuals go. But on the other side of that, starting to invest in the next couple of years of where their their company needs to be. And with that is a lot of pressure on them to start focusing on the what I like to call the full ecosystem of their product. Right. Like the from how it's created, what materials it's created from to even how it potentially is recycled and, and makes its way back into that circle of life, you could say. And uh, uh, for instance. Uh, graphic packaging uh, came out last year that they're actually building a $1 billion facility in Waco, Texas that's bringing hundreds of jobs but even multiply that because of the amount of time it's going to take to of course build this plant uh, the different supply chain right? Uh, truckers uh, intermodal, all these modes that will of course be in and out of the area as well uh, but in order to do that, to afford that and afford the new equipment that they're looking to put in facilities they've unfortunately closed a number of facilities across the United States, including two in Michigan, one big one in Iowa, which was actually open for over 100 years. So, uh, yeah, a lot of that cost now is going into this new Waco facility. And uh, I think what we're going to see over this next year is, again, a lot of these companies companies focusing on areas that they're going to get hit by uh, when it comes to regulations. So there's a, a Four that I, I want to focus on really quick, the post-consumer recycled content. So California actually has a law that's requiring a percentage of post-consumer uh, recycled uh, products used in platforms plastic beverage bottles. Uh, this one, as a Michigander, I love deposit return systems. D 
Uh, and it shows that if you, of course, uh, have that incentive there, people are going to return. As a Michigander, I return all of my bottles. I, I sometimes forget that's not everywhere. Uh, so you're going to see a boost of, of packaging recoverability. Uh, also, uh, extended producer responsibility. I think this is a big one. A lot of regulations are going to start pointing the finger at the producers of packaging, of being responsible for making sure that these products are going through a recycled full life cycle. Uh, and that's, I think, why you're seeing a lot of them starting to invest in, for example, Graphic is investing in their recycled paperboard machine that's going to convert recycled products to, to new packaging. Uh, you also have labeling regulations that you're going to see on their packaging as well. Uh, and of course, uh, chemical restrictions on, on what's being used to, to make certain plastics. So a lot of these packaging producers are going to get the finger pointed to them. Regulations are going to ask them for, for more reporting on what they're doing. And I think with that, you're going to see, unfortunately, layoffs in a lot of these spaces, but a lot of investment that I think will pay off. Maybe not this year, but you'll start to see in 25 and 26 for sure. So are those facility closures related to just less volume, or is it just a shift from one type of packaging technology to another? It's, it's not so much less volume, it sounds like. It's more of doing, uh, if using their, all of their locations in a more strategic manner. So a lot of these, uh, for example, the one in uh, Wyoming, Michigan, or Grand Rapids, Michigan, they're offering other jobs to them. They'd have to move, but there are jobs available to them in other locations. They're trying to condense a lot of their factories into, uh, I guess, more uh, of their other locations. So it's, it's kind of cutting off a little bit of the fat and just running a more lean uh, manufacturing uh, a time or uh, like supply ch chain. Gotcha. So another industry in flux, like so many are. Um, but with that, yes. um, hope everyone has a great day and thanks for listening.